Let's get ready to rumble! The featured event of the evening. The hard-hitting and the undefeated. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. And First, ladies and gentlemen, with a record of 29 wins, no losses. Good morning, everyone. Hello, my name is Kim. I am part of the staff here at Central. Welcome, welcome. Like Corey said, we're going to dive into some questions. I'm going to be asking the questions. They're going to be answering the questions. Now, we're going to throw some back at you for sure, Kim. I know, we didn't I bring you up here for nothing. It's hard for me to keep my mouth shut. But that is kind of the format of what we are trying to do. And I want to thank you. About halfway through the series, we said, why don't you guys go ahead and start asking questions? And, and kind of halfway through, we decided to do this Q&A because there were so many questions. And then you guys engaged. You guys started asking questions. And if we would answer them all, we would be here till tomorrow. So no, if you did ask questions, we're not going to be able to get to them all. But thank you, thank you, thank you. It also helps us to get kind of a heartbeat of where we're at here as a community. So we really appreciate that. So we are going to dive in. Anything else you need to say? Are you ready? I'm ready. I, I just, I like this service because we can go as long as we want. Yeah, and I grabbed these just because I thought, I, we, I didn't do this the first service, but like sometimes conversation is like sparring. Like you get better as you converse and share ideas. And I think part of this format is so that we can spar a little bit, so that we can go, ooh, flex this muscle, learn from each other. And so I just thank you guys for being open to a format where it's a little bit more conversational and though we did do this first service, I think there will be some questions in here that weren't in the first service. And this is not scripted. Um, so pray for me. Craig's good. He brought notes. I didn't know we could do that. Pray for Corey. Very, very no, good. pray for me. I, I thought about this. Corey's going off the cuff. <laughs> so he was like, I better be prepared. Oh, Lord. Here we go. Because <laughs> you get the emails. Okay. Craig, from oh. week five, on church versus state. Um, how do you define Christian nationalism, and what do you do, and what do you mean when you talk about religious right? Yeah, that's why I brought the notes here, actually. This is a really good question, because I've been talking about this for a while, and, and we've got a subtle problem here. If you were to look up online um, the definition of Christian nationalism, you would just recognize from that definition, if you love this country, and you should, by the way, um, this country is an amazing country, and that's why Vipka and I both became citizens here. If you love this country and you love God, there is a sense in which you could read these classic definitions and think, man, I'm a Christian nationalist. And that's why we need to go deeper than that. So I'm really pleased that this question yeah. was, was raised. So let me give you the, the broad definition first, okay? If you were to look it up, it would be Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Yeah. So Christ, uh, uh, Christian nationalists believe that Christianity should enjoy a privileged position in the public square. Okay, that's basically the classic definition of, of, of where this would go. And if you listen, Kim, if we listen, Kim, to a lot of the conversations uh, by uh, followers of Jesus who love this nation, it's that last part that we get tripped up on. Right. It's basically, wait a minute, I just want to hold on to our, what, Christian heritage. So, wait a minute, this classic definition that means that I'm a Christian nationalist, that's where we need to dig a little bit deeper. And so, when you go deeper, I'm going to recommend a couple of books to you here. Um, some of these, I don't agree with everything, pretty much in every book I read. So, these are not endorsements, but these are really helpful books to help us navigate through where we draw the lines on this, because it is one of those issues where we need to draw the lines. So, the first book is this, John Wilsey. W-I-L-S-E-Y, he has written a book called American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion. Now, if you're anything like me, you may need to read some pages three times to understand half of it, okay? That's the way that this book is written. It's written academically because it's talking about civil religion. There is a part of this conversation, Kim, that talks about civil religion, which is different from private religion, civil religion, which is in God we trust, right? There are all of these aspects to do with it, so it's a key part of the conversation. Now, Wilsey differentiates between what he calls open exceptionalism and closed exceptionalism. Closed exceptionalism is basically the belief 
that America is exceptional in nature. Closed exceptionalism believes that it doesn't matter what America does, we're special, okay? So a Christian side of that is America and Israel are joined at the hip, okay? Closed exceptionalism. Wilsey points out in that book that that philosophy undermines the gospel in five essential areas. So in other words, people who hold that view are in danger of actually preaching a completely different gospel. When I talk about the religious right, Kim, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. As much as I love this nation, mm -hmm. I cannot love God and be a closed exceptionalist. Okay? He thankfully talks about open exceptionalism. Open exceptionalism is the belief that America enjoys a special relationship with God based on her heritage, but she's only, she only keeps that specialty when she stays in the right place. Now, how many of you have heard conversations like that? A lot of people in this room would fall into that category. The difficulty with Wilsey's book is he doesn't define where those lines are. Mm -hmm. So I really hope that he would write a part two and dig into this because I think he's onto something. He helps us go a little bit deeper than that general definition. And he says, okay, this is wrong and this is right. The question for each and every one of us who love this nation is, when does my love for this nation actually go too far? Mm -hmm. right. Now, right. second book here. If you want to work this through, I want to recommend a book called um, How to Be a Patriotic Christian. It's by Richard Mao, M-O-U-W, How to Be a Patriotic Christian, Richard Mao. He was the former president, I think, of Fuller Seminary. He is just really, really good at stepping into conversations that are really difficult yeah. and, and helping move the conversation forward. His book does that. Let me say this, his chapter where he'll talk about the flag in there. There's, it's not about the flag, but there's the flag conversation in there, flagging churches. I think that is a good example of where yeah. he kind of punts the ball down the line rather than taking a stand on this one. So there are parts I think he's a little flaky, but I still think it's a very, very good book. So hopefully that kind of explains it. A Christian nationalist is someone who believes that America has a special, uh, that Christianity has a special part in this nation that needs to be preserved, okay? And that the government is duty-bound to basically make sure it stays that way. Um, and then you dig in deeper with that John Wilsey's book, and then we can work that out with Richard Mao, and I think we get a, a good idea. But for me, the Christian right is the part of our nation, the part of the church that ultimately believes that America is the new Israel and that the future is wrapped up around what happens here. I want to tell you that undermines the gospel, and that's not the way the Bible talks about it, even though this nation is a great nation. Amen. Amen. Great. Kim, the only thing I would add, that was very well said, and so many authors, I came with none of that. Um, but I would say, I, I like the, the sequence of the terminology, Christian nationalist, even though I don't necessarily maybe agree with some of the heart of it. Um, yeah. As I've traveled around the world, I am so proud to be an American. I remember when my brother and I first backpacked Europe back in my early 20s, they told us to put a Canadian flag on our backpacks because Europeans didn't like Americans, but they love Canadians. And me and my brother were like, no! Like, our goal is to make them love America, you know, and, you know, it worked half the time. But um, I don't know who told you that because that's certainly <laughs> not true for Vivian and I, but anyway. That's true. <laughs> but, but my point is, and what I, what I learned in, in traveling is, as proud as I am to be an American, a, a citizen of this country that I am so grateful for, once you become a Christ follower, you eat, your eternal citizenship supersedes your temporary citizenship. So what becomes most important to us is that we are citizens of heaven. And our nationality is secondary to that. We are very proud to be from the countries we're from and the positive things, and then we own yeah. the, the things that aren't great. But I am more akin to Christ followers in the Middle East or in Asia or in South or Central America than I am to somebody that has American citizenship because they have eternal citizenship. So that's where our family is around the world. That's what, one of the beautiful things about being a part of this fraternity that is Christianity is you have brothers and sisters around the world, and we champion our kingdom citizenship above our national citizenship, yes, yes. but we're still grateful 
so grateful. Can I just say that one more time? I'm so grateful to be an American. I'm so grateful to be a citizen of the United States of America. And when you travel a lot, you, you learn how grateful we should be. So yeah. I, I hope that you know, kind of gives another angle to that. That's Kim. great. Yeah, That's great. Thank you for totally. defining words. It's, it's complicated. And it's always so great to define words. So. And, and I think the better Christian you are, the better Christ follower you are, the better American citizen you are. Yeah. Because I think you love your neighbor better and I think you serve people better. So again, I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think they actually walk hand in hand really well when done right. Corey, you said, well, it's just about prioritization, right? In the message, I basically said the New Testament prioritizes our heavenly citizenship That's over right. our earthly citizenship. But let's read the book of Daniel. Let's mm -hmm. read, um, you know, some of these books. And what you will see, Esther, you will see how these believers worked out their, their heavenly citizenship in a place that was their home. We're called to do that. How good is it that we don't live in Babylon? We actually live in America and we get to call, uh, work out our faith here. I know spiritually speaking, some people talk about living in Babylon, but Corey and I will gladly take you to places like Babylon, and you will realize how blessed we are. Sometimes the best thing people can do when they talk this nation down is get a passport and join us on a trip. Now you're preaching. Come on. That's right. <laughs> take us to the next question. We'll, we'll spend all day on that's this one. Sorry. No, I just want to add one thing, too. It is, um, the world is getting smaller, too, so we can see what's going on. I love that we can see what's going on in the whole world and have empathy and just know everything that's going on, too, also. Yeah. We're, we're just broader in that. It's just a time we're in right now, and I, and I love that. Okay, I'm going to jump right into Proposal 3. Can I do that? To what? To Proposal 3. Sure, whatever okay. you want to do. And, um, hey, I'm just going to get... We're not able to answer this in, in first service. Some people were questioning, we're wanting that, and you guys are online watching, so I thought I'd jump right to it. So the question is, how do you, I'll make sure I read it right, how do you respond to people in favor of Proposal 3? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, remember I'm a pastor, okay? I'm not a politician, not a policymaker. Um, there are times when public policies are put out there that you look at and you say this would violate scripture. I happen to be that. So if I were talking to someone who is in favor of Proposal 3, what would I do? I would firstly take this as an apologetic question, not a political question. The reason we do very few sermons like this, and only when we believe that this is really what God is calling us to do, is because conversations or, or um, sermons like this don't change people's minds. Relationships do. So the first thing that we need to do in ans answering a question like that, Kim, is just ask ourselves, what is, my, what is the basis of my relationship with the person that I'm engaging with? The second thing that we would need to do, and it's a, uh, probably part two of that first one, is basically ask ourselves, why is this person Prop 3? Why are they Prop 3? Is it because, firstly, autonomy, choice, is more important than justice? Let me put that a different way. Is this, is this because this person believes, has bought into the idea that my ability to choose is more important than my responsibility to others. That's the first thing you've got to discern. Why are they talking about this? Is it an ideological uh, conversation? Or the other part of this, is it basically because they don't like the, what is it, 1930, 1931 law, because it is too restrictive and they do not believe that the exceptions are the right thing? Right? So the First thing you do is recognize this conversation is best worked out in relationship. If I'm not in a relationship, I need to evaluate what is my strategy here. The second thing that we're going to do as a part of this first part is to say, why are they asking me this question? Why are they asking me this question? So, in other words, it, this is not about the information that you know. Let me just tell you this. Jesus said, John 5.39, um, how is it, he says to the religious leaders, you know so much of the scriptures, so much of what they hope for, and yet you do not see who is standing in front of you. In other words, Jesus says knowledge has no power to change the person that we're talking to. It's the work of God. So the first part of this is just saying, Holy Spirit, where is this person at? Why are they asking me this question? No, they're asking you the question. I want to say that too. Yes. Yeah. Why are they asking me this question? 
And okay, that will guide my, that will guide my response. So let me go, I can spend a lot of time on this. Yeah. Okay, and if it's specifically for you, and if you come talk to me or even email me, kfowler at centralholland.org. Um, no, uh, seriesessentialholland.org, and I will take you some of the notes uh, that I've got here, and I will gladly send this over to you. So I'm gonna go through the rest of it quickly. Um, so if it, uh, am I gonna have more than one conversation with this person, right? Um, so you could point out, if this is because, you know what, I, I, I'm just really uncomfortable because of the exceptions. I tackled that in the last part of my sermon, okay? How this has been a real battle theologically in the church until the Catholic Church in 1930 made a decision, insolment, quickening, harmonization, as they called it, is no longer a part of the uh, Catholic worldview, so we are anti any exception. That's a personal choice you all need to make, right? That's the way I view that, personal choice you all need to make. But here's the point. If they are approaching it from that angle, what I would do is I would point out that voting in favor of an extremist policy that will affect millions is a really poor choice as a solution to a law that ultimately impacts, what, tens or hundreds in our state? Extremist solutions that affect the masses are not the best solutions to exemptions. And I would encourage this person to think that through. And then I would help them to realize that the law is dynamic in a nation, not static. Even our constitution is dynamic. It could be changed. I'm not saying it should be. There is a process for this. The law is a dynamic system. And in the system of the American government, the rights of the people and the, the, the rights of the state are actually what? Put, filtered through the judiciary because that is a dynamic process. I would help the person realize, wait a minute, you're making a, accept, uh, you're taking an extreme position because you're viewing the law as static and the reality is if there is consensus in the masses that there needs to be and Exem uh, more exemptions. That will happen, but do not make a decision that will affect millions because you're concerned about something that will affect hundreds. You understand where I'm going with that? That is, a, that is a really, really poor choice, and that is really bad argument. Now, the other part of this, Kim, and I'm going to wrap this part up. If it's because a person is basically valuing autonomy, their rights, okay, over um, justice or community, I would point out that a follower of Jesus can never make that choice. First mm -hmm. Corinthians chapter 8, meat sacrifice to idols, your own freedom. We did a series a number of years ago called Freedom Unlimited, and the, the letters U and N were crossed out because Christians always live with limited freedom. When we become a Christian, we give up the, the right to rule our own lives. We surrender autonomy for lordship. When we become a Christian, we lose the right to do whatever we want to do, even if we have the right to do it. Because when I do something that offends the weaker brother, I am ultimately in sin, even though there is nothing legally stopping me or spiritually stopping me from doing something. So again, if you're talking to a believer who's pro Prop 3 and it's to do with the autonomy side, I would just encourage them to dig into whether autonomy, theologically, scripturally, is the ultimate value here. It isn't. Love is, compassion is, justice is, community is. All of these things take precedence over my own rights, which is why in 1 Corinthians 6 about sexuality last week, I just read those verses from verse 7 where Paul says, why can't you be wronged? You're taking believers to court. He said, why can't you just accept that sometimes something bad is going to happen to you? In other words, freedom even there, the right to go to court is something that shouldn't be pursued. So Kim, I've taken a little bit longer because I know Tuesday's coming. I know a lot of us are wrestling this through, yeah. but I think this is a really good question. Again, exemptions is really tricky. I try to just lay history out for you and say, look at this. Yeah. But my big concern is that a lot of people will actually vote Prop 3 because they're concerned 
about things that will affect a minority. Extreme solutions are bad solutions when millions are impacted as a right of, uh, as a consequence of a few hundred. And sadly, that's the way the Prop 3 pro argument mm -hmm. is being presented. That's just not real. Good. Do you want to add anything to that, Corey? I think he covered it. <laughs> I think he did too. I would just say it's really dope that we have the right to vote in this country because there's a lot of countries where there, you don't. Yeah. And, and I would say question yourself if you complain and don't vote. I would just encourage people to, to exercise their voice where, whichever side exactly. they, they land on. And I'm, I'm just proud and grateful that we do have a voice here. Yeah, great, great. Okay, we are gonna dive into last week, which was clarity versus compassion. This was a sexual identity one. And just know 80% of your questions were from last week. So that just kind of shows that I think the conversations we're all having, I think this is just where we're at right now. So here we go, we're just gonna dive in. If someone is sexually active in the LGBTQ plus lifestyle and attends church, is active in the church, and now wants to take on a leadership position, how does our church respond? After you. <laughs> no, I do, I do have an opinion and an answer, but I like submitting to spiritual authority. Um. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really glad the person asked this question because there needs to be clarity on expectations, right? Where there is not clarity, there is confusion. Confusion causes pain. So as difficult as these topics are, I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're talking Thank about you. them. And one of the reasons we talked about this one was because Pastor Mike, as he oversees ministries, just recognized the need for us to be clear about what leadership expectations were, where leadership begins, where, where it actually ends. Mm -hmm. And so, Kim, the simple answer to this, now simple doesn't mean easy, right? The simple answer to this is anyone engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage whether that be heterosexual or homosexual, is basically violating an expectation for leadership that Scripture lays out. Therefore, if that is the lifestyle choice that they have chosen, heterosexual or homosexual, then basically they have removed themselves from leadership consideration. You understand that, right? Our responsibility is to understand what Scripture says and lay it out. If someone says, hey, I want this and this, they have removed themselves from consideration because Scripture doesn't allow that to happen, right? Now, let's get into the real meat. And I think this is where this Corey is really, really good. Yeah. So I'm going to try and keep this really simple. I think that the real meat of this is where does leadership right. start and where does leadership stop? Where does leadership start and serving end? John Maxwell says leadership is influence. And if you are a, if you're a follower of Jesus, basically you are salt and light, you are influencing, and since leadership is influence, every single one of us are actually leaders. So in a situation like this, Kim, this yeah. is, is not helpful. Because the reality is you are all representing Jesus Christ if you're a follower of Jesus, and therefore you are leaders. So your lifestyle does matter. So we have to differentiate then between organizational leadership positions and the simple matter of you serving Jesus and leading for Jesus as he's called you to do that. That is where this gets really difficult because not every position that allows serving is actually organized leadership but we're not always able to understand where the lines are, right? And I think that's the challenge with that. And Corey, right. you've dealt with yeah. that yep. quite extensively. I, I, I want to let you guys know, like, every church handles this a little different, and that's okay. This isn't black and white in Scripture. It's kind of one of those gray areas, and, and this is what I mean. Um, a great example, a church I served at in South Florida, um, we would say that giving someone a microphone was a position of leadership, but just having someone on stage wasn't. Other churches would say to be on stage right. is a lot of influence, so we would be careful with that. But at that church, um, we recruited a lot of musicians from cover bands that played at bars. Um, great musicians. <laughs> and, and we would invite them to come to our rehearsals, to come to our tryouts. And I remember there was this, a, a, 
I say young man, probably in his early 30s, incredible guitar player, not saved, did not believe in God, but he right. really liked playing guitar. So we invited him to come practice with us, invited him to rehearsal. He tried out, he started playing on Sundays with us. Now, some people would be like, oh, that's leadership. But, but for us, we drew that line different. And again, I'm not saying one's right or what's wrong, but what I did see is because we used the avenue of serving in a place where he was talented, he felt welcomed into a community and it wasn't maybe three or four weeks in playing electric that he started singing these songs just because he was learning them. Oh God, right. oh God, I need, right. he didn't even believe in God. And he would be right. singing that. In six months, he gave his life to Christ. Right. And, yeah, and, and again, that may be a little extreme for some people, but serving at a church is one of the greatest avenues of discipleship and one of the greatest ways where even if somebody doesn't know Jesus or believe in Jesus, you can say, hey, come serve shoulder to shoulder with me. Let's build community, whether it's on the tech team and as a musician, as a greeter in the parking team. It, there's a lot of different places where non-believers or people struggling in one of these areas can serve and learn. And then it's up to us in leadership to, to disseminate and, and figure out okay, when does it become leadership? Because I was talking to a man in between services and he was like, well, a greeter, that's kind of the face of the church, right? That's the first. So if somebody's like living a lifestyle adverse to what we would believe, but their greeting is, it's case by case, guys, we gotta figure it out. And I would say maybe give leaders grace in this because it's not always easy, but I do believe that serving is one of the number one ways to see people discipled and see people come to Jesus. So short plug, if you're not serving, start serving. If you know someone that can, have them jump in. And then as they step into leadership, I think we discern, are they ready to hold and, that role? And I think that the wonder with this is, you know, think of Jesus, he called, meets Matthew. Oh yeah. He meets Matthew in a tax collector right. booth, right? Uh, Preston Sprinkle says, right. gay is the new tax collector for the church, right? Wow. He meets him at a tax collecting booth and then puts him in a leadership position. Get that, folks. Jesus is, the way that Jesus is often, what, attacked is by religious people who love God. Get, let's cut him, cut him some slack here, right? Religious people who love God, believe in holiness, but were concerned because the people Jesus was surrounding himself with didn't necessarily reflect the holiness that they believe that a rabbi should hold to. How many of you have heard this? Be very careful who you mix with because if you're trying to pull them on the table, it's easier for them to pull you off. Have you ever heard that? There's truth to that. But Matthew chapter 9, the passage with Matthew, ultimately Jesus says it's holiness that's more contagious than sin. Right? Holiness is more contagious than sin. Doesn't mean we should be unwise, but it means that drawing this line of distinction between serving and leadership is really, really important. But what you've heard us say is, hey, our lines are pretty clear here on where leadership expectations are. And the best way to work this out is in the context of relationship. One of the best avenues we've got is encouraging people to serve. And we find that when that happens, great things happen. Yeah. And so that's the way we're gonna try and work that out. But it, again, it's a really good question. I, it's messy. Okay. I, know, ahead, I, know, I just want to add one more thing because I didn't say this in the first service. If you're sitting out there and you're like, oh, I am sleeping with my girlfriend or I am a, a, engaged in one of these things that you just said, quote unquote, disqualified, there's a way back. Yeah, you're not disqualified forever. You're no. not so messed up that you can't be used. And no. again, we serve a heavenly father that isn't trying to put like boundaries on us for the sake of punishment at a, a heart of protection. He just recommends, he, he, he commands us to live in a certain way that is best for us. So I just, if you're sitting out there and you're like, oh no, I can never leave, that's not what this means. It just means God wants what's best for you and so do we, and there is a path to that. Yeah, the way the Celebrate Recovery Kim says it, we're all one of those people. That's right. Well, we all are, and that's why it's really interesting. One question is, you know, one question was, the last week was, hey Craig, wait a minute. Um, basically, this, this sexual ethic of sex belongs inside of marriage, marriage is between one man and one woman. You're not really extending grace to, uh, to a homosexual. And my point to that was, wait a minute, um, Dallas Willard says grace is not, um, does not avoid effort. It avoids earning. In other words, grace, it's by grace that we are saved. We are supposed to show people grace, especially in the season where they're struggling. But, it, what is it, Titus says, it is grace that has taught us to say no to ungodliness. Romans chapter 6 says, shall we keep on sinning so that grace may abound all the more? Absolutely, by no means, Paul says. Absolutely not. So there is this tension that we have here about what we all do 
with their own sin. And basically, the whole challenge of the New Testament is for us as leaders to be not just humble, for us as leaders to be teachable. And for us to be in relationships where people are saying, hey, what about the hidden, the controlling power of sin? How is that manifesting itself through your life? Right. And that's why, that's why we say we're all one of those people. So, Corey, I'm glad you said that because the, the problem with this is people can think I'm really struggling with this, maybe sleep with my girlfriend, may have a different value system, so I can't belong here. Yes, you can. Yeah. Read your New Testament. People loved Jesus. People love Jesus. You know what? We want people to I'm love the sure. Jesus in us too. <laughs> I'm not for it. Thank it's you, okay. thank you. I'm, I'm it is messier. It. We're in Holland, remember, you know. So it is it is messier because you have to have a conversation on each situation and dig into it as leadership, you know, making decisions and all of that. It's a, I think that's why rules are easier because you just have the rule and that's it. Yeah, sure. But now we need to lean into that. And that's and it's tough and so and just know leadership is having those conversations. If you see someone, maybe you're questioning or something, you can absolutely talk to us, but, but yeah. Okay, we're going to go on. Corey, I'm going to start with you. Great. How do you live in the tension? Tension is a, is a word we've been saying. How do we live in the tension of loving the LGBTQ plus community versus celebrating? If the example was Gay Pride Month or uh, the parades, the Gay Pride parades. It's a great question, wh whoever wrote that in. And they actually, I think they worded it very intentionally. And, and I do want to point out they use that word tension. I, I think when it comes to loving anybody or, or most of these questions, it's not a problem we solve, it's a tension we manage. Right. Um, and this is a case-by-case -case scenario, I think. I, I, my simple answer would be you love someone from the LGBTQ plus community maybe that's active in that, the same way you would love someone struggling with any lifestyle that would not be one following Jesus. Um, whether it's a, a friend sleeping with his girlfriend or a girl sleeping with a boyfriend or whether it's someone that struggles with drinking right. or getting drunk. That's as right. The Bible says getting drunk is a sin. So like I, if I have a friend that's struggling with alcohol, I probably won't go to a St. Patrick's Day parade with them where everybody's drinking. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to go to an environment, a space, or a place that could reinforce something that's not good for them. I would say the same on that one. I would, I would have to pray for wisdom and discernment. Is showing up at this with them, communicating love for them in a way that leads them to Jesus, or is this reinforcing something that may not be good for them? And that is case by case. Right. I will say this, though, Kim, right. oftentimes, I think God is calling us to uncomfortable spaces to love people that he loves. But again, we just have to use wisdom and discernment on that. So I wouldn't differentiate that community from anybody else we're trying to Absolutely. reach. And I think sometimes we, especially Western Christianity, yeah. we've jacked that up so bad. We put, and you said this in one of your messages, Craig, we've put sexual sin in this like category over here. And then you got like gluttony and gossip and all this stuff over here. And we're like, nah, this is way worse. To quote you and, and the Bible, like sin is sin. And we got to stop judging some people more harshly because we may not struggle with it and have the same heart for them. And to maybe round this out, I think the way you love them has to be intentional. Like, if you have people that are your friends from that community, which I do, um, uh, and I think you got to love them well. Like, invite them to church. Yeah. Invite them to your home for dinner. Like, how many of us are doing that? How many of us are loving these people well and building relationships? I, I said in the first service, um, I, I got to serve in this apartment complex ministry for two years, and our job was just to love our neighbors. Uh, yeah, profound, <laughs> right? And, uh, and there was a lesbian couple there that um, we became really good friends with and had them over for dinner and had game nights, and, and we're talking to them amongst other residents. And I remember one night they, they started opening up about their Catholic background and how the church hurt them. And then one of them said something that I, I'll never forget. They said, Corey, you're different than what we expected. And I was like, how so? And they said, we never thought a pastor would be talking to us like this and, and, and welcoming us to play games and things like this. And, and I said, you're different because you're open to this conversation. And we would talk about scripture and we would talk about church and they were open. They've even watched some of my messages online and they're like, we don't agree, but we support you. But it's building that relationship that I think then opens up the heart for the truth of God in serving and loving. 
Long-winded, not as long as him, but that's what I got for but, you. But I want to I want to go, can I keep into that? Yeah, please. Um, what do you, how would you answer that, Kim? I'm going to put you I on the spot. That. So I, I think a fear a lot of Christians have is if I'm doing that, I'm accepting. How will they know, which, you know, I could answer this, but I'm going to have you answer this. How, how do they know I'm not accepting the lifestyle. I've just heard this yeah. over and over. It feels like I'm accepting them. How can I? Craig, Craig just referenced something, and Craig, you could speak to it, but Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. And, and you could say that from a religious point of view, from the pharisaical point of view, some of his actions would not be quote-unquote above reproach, like the woman at the well. Oh, you can't be seen there. That's right. slander. Or, like, or the tax but like, But Jesus was, because of his integrity, how he carried himself, his motive as an intent, when he was with these people. And so I think, again, it's a heart issue. You know your motive and intent. God knows it. You need to be aware of, of the visual, but I think trusting the Holy Spirit in that is probably the answer, as cliche and Christian-y as that sounds. Yes, and I meant by accepting their lifestyle, not just accepting them, but accepting yeah, their lifestyle. I, yeah. I, I, yeah, it's important. Go another ahead. book, female author, Kim. So Thank like you very one. much. Um, if you want to navigate this one, a great book that helps us by putting us in the mind of the LGBTQ community, um, I think it's always good when we read it from the other side. Um, and so this is a lady who is an English professor, and the book is called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, the subtitle there is An English Professor's Journey into the Christian Faith. Uh, the author is Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, so Rosaria Butterfield. Her story is just incredible. It, it will help us even understand how so many of the conversations we're having right, right now are defining categories that are really not helpful. People are people, whoever they are, right? And when we get to sexuality, transgender, you identify yourself through who you identify with. Homosexuality, you identify yourself by who you're attracted to. Guess what? Lo God loves you irrespective of how you identify yourself or who you're attracted to. That book is just a really, really good book in her sharing her story. And by the way, she's written more stuff. This woman is brilliant. Um, and she's written so much stuff on this. But she, what's powerful in this, Kim, is how this pastor couple ultimately navigated this and how Jesus was presented in this. That was another okay. question. How do we present Jesus in this? You say stick to Jesus. What does that actually mean? This book will do a far better job than I could ever do. So again, I just recommend that book. It's just a really good, almost like biography of one lady's journey through all of this. Great. Good, good. Okay. I am going to go, I'm, I'm going to go to Craig on this. Uh, you had talked about a, a, a third group of people now that is, that is coming out. So this is a question. How large a segment are, you have to dig in to listen to this, are Christians who support same-sex marriage, so Christians who support same-sex marriage, yet believe sex outside the marriage or outside a committed relationship is wrong? Um, great question. Um, Pew Research is the best group for this. Uh, so Pew uh, produced a, re a survey in 2017 that evaluated evangelicals' attitudes in this particular area yeah. uh, with regard to gay marriage. 28% was the number who came out in favor of gay marriage. 20%. Yeah. The great thing with that survey was it was focused on the evangelical community. You can go and look this up online, Pew Research 2017 survey. 28%, 60% uh, of the, those in favor were female, 40% were male. And then it even gives you the breakdown in generations. The baby boomers were actually the biggest group. Those of us may be impacted by the behavior of our children, yeah. by the lifestyle of our children. See, experience changes your view on this, whether you like it or not. It really does, it impacts. When you've gone through something, when you are going through something, it changes you. So that's the survey there, 28%, 2017. They repeated this in 2022, um, came out, I think it was March or April this year. And uh, it again, that one was broader, it looked at all religious groups, but it had the evangelical demographic in there, that if you look at that, it is again 28%. Now, what it doesn't say is, do they have the value of an evangelical of sex inside of marriage, Yes. right? It doesn't answer that, that's an assumption. Right? However, I would just point this out. Since that number is 28%, it's not quite a third, but it's there. The reality is the way that we engage with a group of people who have an evangelical mindset and an evangelical worldview, yeah. 
has to be fundamentally different to how we engage with someone who does not. What's really interesting with, with the message last week, I had the homosexual community reach out, and they were basically saying, you're exactly the same as everybody else, you're just kinder about it. I had the conservative community concerned that I was ultimately yes, going too far concerned. liberal. They are. This is the problem, folks. This is it. We've got two kind of communities that we're talking to. And so my point here is, please recognize, for the sake of the people who need Jesus, that we're having two conversations here, at least not one. Right? Two conversations, not one. And apologetics, right, the art of presenting the gospel, we present the gospel. You do realize God does not need to be defended, right? You recognize that the truth does not need to be defended. First Timothy, Paul says, guard the truth. <laughs> Defending is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Proclaiming is what I'm supposed to be doing. God doesn't need to be defended. But how we guard the truth yeah. and how we present the truth has to differ according to the worldview of the people we're engaging with. There is a redefinition of six critical texts by an evangelical community that I would suggest from Pew is going to be somewhere around that one in four, one in three, which means that we have to change the way we speak. Yes. But just because I change the way we, I speak, you do not have to fear that I'm changing the way I interpret the Scripture. That's what a lot of these questions were coming from. I'm not, but I'm telling you, I do not want anybody who identifies themselves according to the sex they're attracted to to ever feel that God does not love them through the way I respond to them. I won't do that because that pushes so them further away from Jesus. So good. Good. Do you want to add anything to that at all? I, I will. I, I think um, de definitely I have a number of, of Christian friends who, what they would go to affirming churches and, and are affirming of that, and lo just lots. And so we're just having so many conversations. So it is, a, and it is, I want to say, in the last two years, a new conversation, you know, for me. And so uh, for myself, and I think for all of us, we just have to dive in, really see, know what we believe. And so we can, you know, and just talk about it. But again, I think kind and curious and being very confident in, in what you believe, but it doesn't have to be argumentative or anything like that, but it is growing, and I think especially in the younger people, they're really questioning this, so what's know what we believe. What's interesting there, Kim, if you have a look at the 22 survey with the 2017 survey, you can actually see that there is a sense in which they're, they, I think they define it as younger millennials. Yeah. The younger millennials who are, who are affirming are ultimately 10% lower than the baby boomers who do. Maybe Spencer and Nick, maybe churches out there who are, who are just trying to point this out, maybe they're doing a better job than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. Our student ministries, uh, things like the landing, the ministries out there that are really engaging with us, they yeah. are probably far better at dealing with this than Absolutely. some of us who are older and who ultimately think we know the word, but we don't know how to apply it. And so, go, again, go and look at the survey out there. I think that we've got a lot to be thankful for because our, our, our next-gen ministry teams, and this is, goes for many churches out there, they're on the front lines engaging with this all the time. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at that survey result, just a snapshot, it's just a snap summary, no, nothing in depth. I was just thankful for the work that student ministry teams, children's so ministry good. teams are doing to just show the, sow the word of truth into people from the time they're young. Because I'll tell you what, our younger people too are really good at crossing cultures, crossing issues in a way that doesn't put a nuclear bomb in the relationship. Good. We often do that. So I think we can do a good, a good job here by looking at student ministries and finding out how they're dealing with it because they're doing great. Yeah, great, good. Corey. Yes, Kim. Okay. Can a person reject God's word to a point that God gives them over to their evil desires and stops pursuing them, which you know is a scripture uh, from Romans 124. And Romans 124 seems to indicate that's possible. Actually, it it's even says it's more than just possible. Does, does God yeah. turn people over? Good question. And I love that they quoted Romans 124 there, which does yes. talk about God giving people over to their evil desires. Um, but to just press in on it without going too long. Yeah. I, I think they're half right that God is like a good parent. He's a father. 
Um, many of you may have grown up like me as a kid. They would call me in, in Cajun French, tetha brick, which meant hard-headed. I was very stubborn. And so like when the stove was hot, my mom would be like, don't touch that. I was the little kid that was like, but I don't want to touch it, right? <laughs> and I'd touch it and be like, ow, and she'd be like, I told you so. I, I didn't touch it again after that. I think a lot of us live our spiritual lives that way. We're going, God, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And God loves you, and he's trying to protect you and I, but he also gave us free will. If he controlled your outcome, that would not be free will. A lot of us do things that lead to bad consequences, and then we blame God. <laughs> I wonder if God sometimes is like, but you touched the stove, I told you not. And Romans 1 there is this idea of that people wanted bad things, and they kept fighting God on it, so finally he gave them over to their desires. But just like a little kid that touches a stove and goes, oh, I've... I've hit bottom, now I can look up. Sometimes it is God's grace to allow us to go through things that we on our own want, so that way we can hit a bottom far enough down to look up at him. But I think the second half of the question I would say is incorrect. I don't think God stops pursuing. If you look at the um, parable of the prodigal son, yes, the father representing God let the son go, go. to yes. his own vices and his own, but then he was there looking and waiting for him every day. And yes. as soon as he turned and came back, he was there with open arms. And so I think if some of us have gone to these depths and gone to these pits and, and maybe God has allowed us to be depraved of mind, just do things that aren't good for us, big or small, all we have to do is turn back. It's that repentance word. It's just look back. And I think God's right there with open arms going, you're welcome. Like, let me kill the fattened calf to, you know, speak Christianese. Yeah. Like, let's throw a party because my son who was wayward has come home. So I don't think Jesus stops pursuing us. Yeah, Billy Graham's answer to this, Kim, was God never gives up on us until we give up on him. Yeah. Isaiah 53, 6, basically God intentionally pursues those people who intentionally walk away from him. At what point is that irreversible? It's a theological conversation. I wondered whether the person who wrote the question and just read the book, The Pursuing God, I think it's by Jason Butler or something like that, um, because that's one of those, that's one of the questions that are pursued in there. I think the way I would, Corey, I, I would echo what you say, where is that line theologically? You know what, that's in the mystery of God, not in me, but if, I don't want my answer to this question to give the impression that it is ever okay for us to stop pursuing someone that God loves. But I will also want to be honest pastorally and say that one of the hardest things in pastoral ministry is knowing when my helping is hurting. At what point does God ask me to be like him in the parable of the sower and just let my son go? Just let this person go, even though it's the wrong choice, even though it's the wrong thing. Because for some people, like that son, they need to get the, to the point of no return in order to wake up and return home. Yeah. And I think that's the hope of the gospel. That's good. This question asks me to, to know what God is doing. I know what God has done. He sent Jesus. He, he has given us the possibility of repentance. Right. I know that those who accept that, have not committed the unforgivable sin. And, and so for me, I am going to encourage people to keep pursuing over and over again, but to just be wise enough to recognize that sometimes we need to be like the father in the prodigal, uh, in the prodigal son parable, and basically just say, I need to let them go, and I do so watching and praying every time Absolutely. for them to have reached the point where they would be wise enough to come back home. And that's what I would just say to that question. And Kim, Romans 1 does talk about God giving people over to their evil desires, but if Romans 2 talks about it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And I think that's, we got to remember to default to kindness. Kindness is a superpower. You mentioned it earlier, Kim, yeah. you mentioned it earlier. If we have people in our lives that are running away from God that used to know him, kind, like there's this great quote from the theologian John Mayer that says, uh, I, I don't remember changing my mind because of the pain on a sign. Like people screaming and protesting at you. Have you ever changed your mind because somebody screamed at you in protest? But people that were kind to you and built relationships with you were those that could speak into your heart. So if you know somebody that's running that way or somebody in one of these lifestyles, ask the question, how can I be kind to them? And I, I think we'd be surprised how God will use that. That's great. We are, I think we're done. Anything else you want to say to this? I think that was just a great way to 
No, I, I know some of you reached out personally to me. I'm going to try, even if it takes me months, to get back to some of those questions. So if there is something that's been triggered to you, K. Fowler, Central Holland, or all that. Seriously, do reach out to Corey now, because these are important conversations, and this is why we wanted to do it like this, because, as I said in the, in the series we did, we, we recognized the topics that we were taking on, that we were opening a door, that we didn't have a time to walk through in every detail. Um, and so your questions here, if there's things that you're going through, please do reach out. We've got a great team of staff too that would just love to walk alongside you. One question was pointed out to me, or one observation was pointed out, yeah. and it was, hey, Craig, when you did that, um, the life versus choice message, do you think it would have been wise for you to have ultimately had an opportunity for people who've gone through that and are in this church to ultimately receive prayer? Um, that was true. Uh, that was a miss on my part. Actually, my wife pointed that out before, and I just didn't think in a topic of that nature it would be that way. So there are things like that that we do. It, it's like, yeah, that's right. And so if anything we've said through this has just been painful to you personally, know that we don't mean to hurt anyone at all. We're trying to balance just being clear about what the truth is yeah. and actually just do it in a way that honors Jesus. Another question was, you say Christians are angry. Where do you get that from? Read Ed Stetz's book, uh, Unrighteous Rage. Uh, kindness or uh, right in, a, in an age of rage, uh, and you'll see where that is. We just need to be kind and loving and just not put people in boxes. We, we've done that in these messages. Let's get rid of the box and just treat people as people who God loves and do everything we can to present the truth in love. And I think if we do that, we win. So and, uh, good. And Kim, I would and just add just briefly, Craig, on behalf of the church, thank you for being a pastor that's not afraid to talk about tough things that a lot of pastors we do avoid. So just seriously, thank you. I know you hate this, but I really, we really appreciate it. And thank you, Central, for being a humble, teachable, open church where we can spar a little bit about theological issues, but know that we all agree that it's about Jesus and it's about getting people to Him. Like the great Billy Graham said, it's God's job to judge, it's the Holy Spirit's to convict, it's our job to love. So thank you for being a loving church. Thank you for letting us do this. Did y'all enjoy this series? All right, cool. Let's see if we do something like this again in the future. Kim, I know we got one more song to sing, but Kim, thank you so much again thank for your you. leadership throughout this and for doing such a great job thank here today. You so we much. love you. Okay, these guys you. are going to lead. Let's thank Craig and Corey for everything thank you guys. for these questions. Thank you. I am too proud to be a part of a community that wants to wrestle with some hard questions, even if it gets emotional, even if it gets hard sometimes, we're just gonna dig in and, and search the scriptures and, and find out what we believe in all of this. So we believe we have the Holy Spirit to help us also. So we are so thankful for that. Again, thank you um, for participating with us in this. The, the uh, band is gonna sing a last song, so why don't we all stand and I'm just gonna pray us out. Lord, I am thankful that you are the constant. You are the one that doesn't move when everything is shifting around us, when there's new questions in life and, and our lives might be even falling apart, but you are constant and you are still and you are the same forever, for yesterday, today, forever. You are the same and I am so thankful you are the firm foundation that we find ourselves. So I just pray as we are working through this and doing life together really well as a community and um, searching your words, searching the Holy Spirit on, on how to approach all these things in love as Christ did. But he is our firm foundation, and I am so, so grateful for that. In Christ's name, amen.